1: On the 19th of July, 1588, off the coast of Cornwall, in the far southwestern corner of England, the vanguard of a huge fleet of warships appeared through the sea mist. An invasion force from Spain had been long feared; it was now finally confirmed. Using a system of beacons along the south coast, a message was sent to the English fleet waiting in the port of Plymouth that time had come. This was the start of one of the most famous incidents in English history. The defensive realm led by Queen Elizabeth I against the might of the Spanish Armada. The final result, the defeat of the Armada, was a huge propaganda victory for Elizabeth, which still largely shapes our image of her today. Her fame has even reached the big screen. Kate Blanchett has played her twice in two blockbuster films, once in 1998 and again in 2007. Our understanding of Elizabeth has been heavily influenced by the propaganda that surrounded her in her own reign, and it has steadily grown ever since. It is interesting that her portrayal in contemporary paintings lack the reality of the early works of Holbein or Van Dyck. They more resemble the icons of a saint than faithful representations of a human being, and conceal her complex character which had to deal with many challenges in a time of great change and uncertainty. Although it is true that the defeat of the Spanish Armada was a decisive moment in English history, to understand its significance, one must consider the wider events of the time, and events which led up and followed it. Welcome to History of Europe Key Battles, The Spanish Armada and the Anglo-Spanish Wars of 1585-1604, to Part 1 five. The origins of the Anglo-Spanish conflict lie in the death of King Edward VI of England on the 6th of July, 1553, 30 years before the Armada. Edward was the only legitimate son of King Henry VIII, and had ascended to the throne in 1547 at the age of just ten. As a minor, the running of government fell into the hands of nobles, who were predominantly Protestant, most notably the Duke of Northumberland. Edward, as he grew up, was generally healthy, but at the age of just fourteen he caught a severe attack of measles, from which he died before he was able to assert himself on the throne. On his death, the Duke of Northumberland attempted to install his daughter-in-law, Lady Jane Grey, as queen. Jane Grey ruled in name for only nine days before she was imprisoned in the Tower of London and later executed, easily toppled by a swift counter-coup led by Henry VIII's eldest daughter, Mary. A devout Catholic. Daughter of Catherine of Aragon and a 37-year-old spinster, Mary immediately turned to her cousin, Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, for advice. Charles was near the end of his long reign and in the process of considering how to pass on his immense inheritance. He wanted to leave his lands in Central Europe and title of Emperor to his younger brother, Ferdinand. For his elder son, Philip, he arranged a marriage with Mary calculating that it would be the advantage of both sides. He saw it as a way of allowing Philip to be able to rule both Spain and the Netherlands. Potentially the result would be a new Anglo-Dutch state, ruled by the heir of Philip and Mary, who would secure domination of the Channel and the North Sea, and so keep the French in check. From the side of the English, many were cautious about getting entangled in foreign affairs, but Mary managed to win them round. As for Philip, even with the kingdom as dowry, he was unenthusiastic about the prospect of marrying a cousin twelve years older than himself, and he accepted the will of his father. The conditions of the marriage were that any child of the couple would inherit England, Ireland, and the Netherlands. But if Mary should predecease her husband without issue, then Philip's authority in England would immediately end. Philip, as a young man, cut an impressive figure, despite his medium height and slight build. He wore black and silver, was quiet and dignified, with a gracious manner and a charming smile. In appearance he had a high forehead, wore a moustache and beard, which partially hid his long Habsburg jaw. In July 1554 he arrived in Portsmouth. England, for the wedding, and rode to Winchester with an escort of some three thousand nobles and retainers. The weather was so bad he was compelled to stop a mile from the city in the shelter of a recently dispossessed monastery, to change his finery before entering the city. There he was welcomed by a number of bishops, and made a solemn procession to the high altar to sing Mass. He immediately got on well with Mary, who, at thirty-eight, was a slim, rather small woman whose fair hair had become mousy in colour. Her complexion, though pale, was good and still youthful. Character-wise, she was warm and sincere, and of good humour. After the wedding, a great banquet was held, with many servings of meat and fish. The Spaniards noted that Mary was served on a gold plate, Philip on silver, and that Mary had the higher chair the English leaving a clear message as to how they saw the future. The meal lasted until six in the evening, then dancing until nine, and was by all accounts a splendid occasion. It looked as if the old friendship between England and Spain had been renewed, and a return to the old faith that is Catholicism guaranteed. English opinion was divided over Mary's marriage only grudgingly had they conceded Philip the title of king. Philip could not appoint foreigners to office in England, nor commit England to a foreign war. He could, however, get involved in some domestic policies, chiefly concerning the restoration of the Church of Rome. Cardinal Paul, who was personally close to the papacy, was appointed a new Archbishop of Canterbury, and officially accepted England back into the Roman Catholic Church. By the end of the year, 1554, old heresy laws were revived, and the first Protestant was burned at the stake on the 4th of February, 1555. Philip received plenty of advice and correspondence from his father, who favoured a less harsh line on religious persecution in fear of provoking a counter reaction. Over the next year, Mary fell completely in love with Philip. For his part, though, Philip was uncomfortable in English politics, did not reciprocate Mary's love and did not care for the English way of life. In November 1554, though, there appeared to be good news when there were signs that Mary was pregnant. The couple moved to Hampton Court where there was assembled midwives and a wet-nurse. Although Mary experienced many of the signs normally associated with pregnancy, she never gave birth. Charles now urged his son to join him in the Netherlands, and in late August Philip left his wife and crossed the Channel. The Emperor, worn out by decades of rule, had decided to abdicate, and in January 1556 passed on the crown of Spain to his son, who was henceforth known as King Philip II. Throughout the year of 1556, in spite of his wife's pleadings, Philip remained on the continent to deal with matters in the Netherlands. Tensions were high between Philip and King Henry II of France, a legacy of the, by now, decades-long Italian wars, and Philip tried to obtain a declaration of war by England against France. He spent three months in England in 1557, before returning to Brussels to take charge of military manoeuvres against the French. At the Battle of Saint Quentin on the 10th of August 1557, he achieved a significant victory over France and went on to sack several French towns. However, the cost of fighting had been great, and the Dutch authorities rejected a request for further funds to continue the campaign. In response, King Henry II recalled his troops from the Italian peninsula, who on the 31st of December made it a counter attack by besieging the English enclave of Calais. The speed of the attack, led by the Duke of Guise, surprised the garrison, which fell the next month. The last foothold of England on the continent was lost, as it turned out, for good. The port city of Calais, apart from its commercial value, was symbolic of the past, the glorious campaigns of the Black Prince and Henry V. Its loss was a grievous blow for the prestige of England, and a great personal setback for Queen Mary. Then in the month of May the unfortunate Mary became ill. On November 1558, at the age of 42, she passed away, possibly of ovarian cancer. In the same month. During an influenza epidemic died Archbishop Cardinal Pole, who had been central in the attempt to restore a Catholic faith in England. The death of Mary meant an end to an active alliance with Spain. However, the Spanish had good reasons for continuing friendly relations with England. Their main rival for power, the French, had a presence in Scotland which they wished to counter by supporting Elizabeth. Philip considered marrying Mary's successor, Elizabeth, but instead chose the eldest daughter of Henry II, Elizabeth of Valois, to help create more friendly ties with the French. Elizabeth, in contrast to her staunchly Catholic sister, had been brought up as a Protestant, so the match would have been difficult. It was a time of great change across the political landscape of Western Europe. Another event of great significance was the signing of the Peace of Cato Cambresi in April 1559, which marks the end of the conflict known as the Italian Wars, 1494-1559. to The French gave up their claims in Italy, and in return recovered some towns along their north-eastern border. Perhaps just as important as the signing of the peace was that during the celebration, King Henry II was mortally wounded in a jousting tournament and succeeded by his young son, Francis II.
0: Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
1: In England, Elizabeth I, daughter of Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn, ascended her throne on the 17th of November, 1558, at the age of 25. As her triumphal progress wound through the city on the eve of the coronation ceremony, so She was welcomed wholeheartedly by the citizens and greeted by orations and pageants. Apart from her concern to recover Calais, in stark contrast to her father, the young queen was very reluctant to get involved in conflict abroad. While Henry regarded the pursuit of military glory as the ultimate sport of kings, Elizabeth had seen all too well the political consequences of heavy military expenditure and the corrosive effects which endlessly revenue-raising had upon royal authority. For Elizabeth, foreign war was at best a necessary evil, and one that should be avoided if possible. She recognised that her kingdom simply did not have the funds to wage war, and instead concentrated on domestic matters. The economy of England was still overwhelmingly agricultural, and exposed to the vagaries of weather. There were also repeated waves of disease, not only the dreaded bubonic plague, but also a number of air and waterborne infections. Nevertheless, since the reign of her father, the population of England had been growing steadily. The one great industry of the kingdom was the production of woollen cloths for export to the continent. Its growth was checked in the 1550s by a glut in the market and other conditions, but it remained the mainstay of foreign commerce and important money earner. As for the style of governance of Elizabeth, writes Paul Hammer in his book Elizabeth's Wars, she, quote, battled male prejudice and attempts to dictate her actions throughout her life. Her response was to develop a style of queenship which suppressed any signs of competition for attention by female courtiers and forced her male courtiers to compete for her royal favour as if they meant to woo her. By playing them off against each other in the manner of courtly love, Elizabeth ensured that her leading male subjects could not gang up and try to force her to approve policies which they had already agreed among themselves." Her experience growing up during the reign of her sister, when being openly Protestant, could risk a death sentence, also contributed to a natural sense of caution. Elizabeth would often postpone hard decisions because she wanted to keep her options open as long as possible, yet there were times when her indecision became a problem, and she was also known for losing her temper when feeling cornered into making a decision. Her first task as Queen was dealing with the question of religion, a matter which was at the time tearing up societies across Europe and made more difficult by the contradictory policies of her predecessors Edward and Mary. She chose as her coronation slogan the word Concord to emphasise her intention of bringing harmony to a divided nation. The historian, John Guy, believes she may originally have aimed to revive Henry VIII's religious legislation, to re-establish her royal supremacy and the break with Rome, and to permit communion in both kinds, bread and wine, after the reformed fashion, but nothing else. Her chief councillor, William Cecil, however, had other plans. In January 1559, he introduced bearers in Parliament to re-establish royal supremacy and full Protestant worship based on the 1552 Common Book of Prayer, as issued in the reign of Edward VI. The change of official policy under Elizabeth was treated by the English Protestant community as a divine deliverance. In time, the Anglican Church became a pillar of the Elizabethan state. And England was able to avoid the religious war that afflicted other European countries at the time. Yet although England was officially Protestant, a huge missionary effort to win the hearts and minds of the common people lay ahead. Outside the large towns of southern England, Catholicism still predominated Elizabeth's accession. In addition, Protestantism, with its emphasis on Bible study, was an academic creed unattractive to illiterate villagers steeped in the oral traditions and symbolic ritualism of medieval England. The growth of Protestantism in England was mostly based on preaching, not so much top-down from government but individual volunteers who felt passionately for their cause. It took some time but they were able to achieve their goals thanks to the long reign of Elizabeth. A major challenge, however, was that the decision to decisively break with Rome would have a significant impact on foreign relations. The Catholic-Protestant divide had opened up a whole new dimension in the power dynamics of Christendom. The great dilemma for Elizabeth was that the Protestant communities of northwestern Europe lived within the territory of states which were officially Catholic. For them to take up arms would entail rebellion against their prince, which, as a principle, she was deeply opposed to. To quote Paul Hammer, quote, This posed an acute dilemma for Elizabeth, to whom these Protestants soon began to look for support. While she was concerned with the fate of fellow Protestants, Elizabeth also shared her father's preference for dealing with fellow anointed sovereigns, and hence disliked all rebels on principle, and recognised the practical dangers of being seen to condone rebellion abroad when so many of her subjects still remained Catholics. End quote. Across the border in Scotland, meanwhile, Protestantism was likewise gaining ground. Traditionally, Scotland had fought hard to attain independence from England. Henry VIII had made plans to form a dynastic union between the two states by marrying his son Edward with the Scottish Princess Mary, known to history as the Queen of Scots. His aggressive approach, the so-called rough wooing of Scotland, had the opposite effect and only served to drive the Scots into the arms of their old allies, the French. At this time, an important new figure emerged in the history of Scotland. Mary, Queen of Scots. Mary was born in December 1542, nine years later than her cousin Elizabeth. Her father, James V of Scotland, died a week after her birth at the age of just thirty. At the age of only nine months, she was crowned queen, and her mother became queen regent. Before she was sixteen, she married the Dauphin of France, and a year later, after the unexpected death of King Henry II of France in a jousting accident, became queen of France. The most powerful noble of France was now Francis, Duke of Guise, the same who had taken Calais from the English, who was a Catholic zealot and eager to advance Mary, Queen of Scots' claim to the English throne, encouraging her to adopt heraldic devices which asserted that she, and not Elizabeth, was the rightful Queen of England and Ireland. Elizabeth therefore faced a serious threat from the more militarily powerful Kingdom of France. In Scotland, a similar power struggle, similar to that south of the border, was being fought between Protestants and Catholics. When the Scottish Protestant leaders appealed to the English Queen for help, the two sides found common cause in two areas, firstly in preventing the French from gaining a secure base in Scotland, from where they could then threaten an invasion across the weakly fortified Anglo-Scottish border, and secondly the joint advancement of the reformed faith. Elizabeth's response was to try her best to support the Scottish rebels without provoking the French into war. Covert aid was sent in the form of arms and money, initially only in French coins to avoid suspicion. It was suggested by her government that English soldiers might go as volunteers, rather than as official English troops. This allowed Elizabeth to deny involvement, and to deflect any blame from her opponents, in this case Catholics. Such a type of policy is known as plausible deniability, and is still practised by nations today. However, the English level of support which was possible to provide covertly became increasingly inadequate, as the French began to gain the upper hand, and so Elizabeth was forced into more open intervention on behalf of the Scottish Protestants. In the spring of 1560, her chief advisor, William Cecil, led an expedition which successfully defeated the pro-French forces. It was particularly unfortunate for the Scottish Catholics that their leader, Mary Gies, the mother of Mary Queen of Scots, died very soon after, on 11th of June. The so-called Treaty of Edinburgh was signed on the 6th of July, according to which both French and English troops had to leave Scotland. The Protestant side achieved final victory the next month when the Scottish Parliament officially enacted a religious reformation of their country. In the Royal Courts of France, meanwhile, Mary Queen of Scots was on her way to becoming a considerable political force, but she was not given the chance. Her time on the throne was cut short by the death of her young and sickly husband, Francis II, who died a mere one and a half years into his reign in December 1560. Mary was left a young widow with no future at the French court. She attempted to gain the hand-marriage of the heir to the Spanish throne, Carlos, but this was vetoed by the king's mother, Catherine de' Medici, so instead she accepted an invitation from the Scottish Parliament to take up her crown there. She probably expected financial and military support from the French, but soon after she left the country, France descended into a religious civil war, and so was too preoccupied with internal matters to provide any assistance. To the disappointment of the Catholic party, Mary tolerated a newly established Protestant ascendancy, perhaps as she felt she had no choice. Another opinion is that her focus was more on scheming for the English throne than solving the internal problems of Scotland. Elizabeth offered her cousin her full support and protection on condition of renouncing all claims to the English throne, but Mary declined the offer. In 1565, Mary married her first cousin, Lord Darnley. It seems more motivated by passion than by political calculation. The union infuriated Elizabeth, who felt the marriage should not have gone ahead without her permission, as Darnley was both her cousin and an English subject. Before long, Darnley grew arrogant. Not content with his position as king consort, he demanded the crown matrimonial which would have made him a co-sovereign of Scotland with the right to keep the Scottish throne for himself if he outlived his wife. Mary refused his request, and their marriage grew strained. In February 1567, Darnley was found murdered in the garden. The main suspect, the earl of Bothwell, was not only acquitted of the charge in April 1567 but the following month he married Mary. The Scottish nobility were appalled and rose in revolt against the couple. Mary was imprisoned in Loch Levin Castle and on the 24th of July, 1567, was forced to abdicate in favour of James VI, her one-year-old son by Darnley. Elizabeth, far from rejoicing from the misfortunes of her cousin, was furious with the Scottish rebels, Not only had they raised arms against their lawful sovereign, but they had deposed and imprisoned her. She tried to persuade them to release Mary, but without success. In early 1568, Mary escaped from prison and fled to England. Elizabeth acted with caution and provided accommodation for her cousin in Carlisle as half guest, half prisoner. None of the options of what to do with Mary were good. Elizabeth would have preferred to have restored Mary to her throne, but had to accept the political reality that this was unacceptable to the leaders of Scotland. Forcing the issue would have led to civil war. The option of freeing Mary would mean allowing her to return to France and risk stirring up renewed French interest in her claim to the English throne. Keeping her prisoner in England would no doubt risk intrigue with her contacts there for the crown but was decided upon as the least worst alternative. The tensions between Elizabeth and Mary Queen of Scots is often seen in popular history as the crucial factor in the decision of King Philip of Spain to launch the Spanish Armada against England. In fact, a more important motive lay across the Channel in the Netherlands, and it is this subject to which I will turn to next week in part two of the series. Thank you for listening to a History of Europe Key Battles and I look forward to speaking to you again next week.